You are listening to the podcast of the Y Church of the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. Nehemiah 1 through 11a. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Thank you, Megan. Well, interruptions come in all kinds of forms, and it could be a snowstorm like we had where all of a sudden you have a snow day or two to deal with. It could be losing your wallet or your phone or your keys. Yesterday, my brother-in-law ran over his phone with a snowmobile. It's a collective awe, right? (laughs) Interruptions can come via people. When a little one has a question and you're trying to get some work done, maybe during said snow days at home, or it could be your boss who, out of the blue, says, hey, could I talk to you for a minute? Sometimes interruptions are just a nuisance, and sometimes they're much more serious I remember having to call my dad from the back of an ambulance when I was 17 and saying, Dad, I'm okay, but I had a car accident and everything stops. Sometimes the predictable pace of our life gets interrupted by something and we're forced to pay attention. And in those moments, I have found in my life that it pushes you to prayer. Interruptions are never planned for, I suppose, by definition. But they can carry that silver lining with them, that they interrupt your own self-sufficiency and they move you toward prayer. So here we are beginning the season of Lent, the first Sunday in Lent today. Lent as a sort of interruption in the church calendar. Jesus was just 33 years old. He should have, by normal life expectations, had many years yet to come, except now he has entered the final 40 days of his life as he heads toward an early death on a Roman cross. And it's a death that he will endure for you and me. So during the season of Lent, we interrupt the calendar to take special focus each year on focusing on Jesus and his life and what it means to follow him. And we remember why he came. And and maybe in a sense, this late in the winter season, we're rattled from any kind of spiritual slumber that may have slipped in over winter. And this year, we're asking God to awaken us to a better understanding of prayer. What does it look like to talk with God? Now, some of you are intimately familiar with prayer, and your day is shaped by walking and talking with God. 
And we recognize this. We run the gamut here. Some of us have hardly any experience with prayer, and it would be an entirely new practice in your life to pray, almost like you'd learn a foreign language from scratch. And some of you find yourselves somewhere in the middle. You pray, you have prayed, but you know that your prayer life could be something more than it is, and you have a desire to grow. So that's the plan for Lent. I titled our series, He Hears My Voice, which is a beautiful phrase from Psalm 55. And we're going to spend the next five Sundays focusing on prayer as we lead up to Palm Sunday. We're going to travel across the Bible, too, as we learn about these things. I thought we would start and end our series with two wonderful examples of people who prayed, Nehemiah and Jehoshaphat. So that's where we'll end. That's weeks one and five. And then in the middle, we're going to take up the Lord's Prayer and praying the Psalms right in the middle and Jesus' invitation to ask, seek, and knock. So there's your little preview of where we're going. It's been on my heart to lead us into this topic, and I do so by no means as an expert on prayer. I hope you wouldn't think such a thing that because being a pastor is my job and I pray up front and pray with people that somehow that would make me an expert. I come as a fellow traveler with you, very much in need to learn more about prayer in my own life. So let's start there. I I thought we'd start with a definition before we jump into Nehemiah's prayer. I had a challenge in a class in seminary to come up with a definition of prayer that would be 15 words or less. It might be something you want to do this week. In your own words, what is prayer in 15 words or less? I look back at my notes from that particular class this week, and here's what I said. I'm going to show you three definitions, and they will get better as we go. But here's where we start. This is what I wrote. Prayer is two-way communication with the triune God to foster relationship with him and be changed. Well, also in my notes was the professor's definition. He got it down to even fewer words. Dr. Holloman, here's what he said. Prayer is the biblical means for believers to communicate effectively to God. And then, lo and behold, this week I was reading a blog post from our friend and brother, Kurt Hinkle, who also wrote on Nehemiah 1. I just, you know, God lines these things up, right? We didn't talk about that. So Kurt's writing on Nehemiah, and he shares this definition from Dallas Willard. Prayer is talking with God about what we're doing together. Now, Dallas Willard, he passed away about a decade ago. He was an esteemed philosophy professor at USC. And if he can define it in 10 words or less, that is quite the accomplishment. But each one of those three definitions would show us something, and that is that prayer involves two parties, you and God. Or if it's corporate prayer, us and God. And I thought I might have you endure one more of my little stick drawings that I've done over the years. So I'm going to put this on the screen to show us what this two-way communication looks like. So there you see it. Well, that's you at the bottom, and we'll follow it around to the right. So when you pray to God, you're communicating with God, and he then, in response, speaks and reveals his will and his ways. And the primary way he does that on the left side is going to be through Scripture, through his written word, but also through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then as God speaks and reveals, and you can feel in other words, as he comforts, as he corrects, then we're listening and we get to respond anew in prayer. 
Another way of picturing prayer is that it is to the soul like breathing is to your body. This communication loop that you see up on the screen is like an inhale and exhale of your spiritual life. And like breathing, that would mean it is essential for your spiritual life. I pray and I listen and God speaks. That's how it works. So let's turn now to Nehemiah. That's just by way of introduction. I wanted to start our series with Nehemiah because the prayer that he prays in chapter 1 is what I would call a model prayer for us to see all the basic components of prayer and, and how this works. And it comes for Nehemiah by way of interruption. Nehemiah is living about 450 years before Christ when this happens. It's the tail end of the Old Testament chronologically. This is after the Babylonians have destroyed Jerusalem and taken the people off into exile. But it's also after that time, and the Babylonians have already been replaced by the next superpower, and that's the Persians. This also takes place after Ezra, there's a priest named Ezra, who had received permission 13 years earlier from the Persians to go back to Jerusalem. But all that to say, there are still a lot of Jews in exile, and Nehemiah is one of them. And he is serving in the court of the Persian king. The closing line of chapter 1 tells us that he was the king's cupbearer. That was a very high post, a prestigious position. That means he has direct access to the king. And in fact, the king's life is in Nehemiah's hands on a daily basis. Because he is the one who is selecting the king's wine... And not only does he have to have good taste, but he is tasting it before he gives it to the king to make sure it's not poisoned. So it's quite the job. That's Nehemiah. And life is going on as normal for Nehemiah, and then interruption. Before our prayer that we get to in this passage, we get the background. There's a group of Jewish guys from Judah who came all the way over to the city of Susa. It's called it's by the Persian Gulf, modern-day Iran. This would be like, by the way, if you and I had to go on foot to Toronto, across Wisconsin, through Chicago, across Michigan, into Ontario, and all the way to Toronto. So it's a long ways away from home, and that's where, after what they think would have been four months of traveling, they find Nehemiah. Now, have you ever run into somebody from home or from your hometown a long ways away from home? That's a pretty special experience, especially if you might be overseas or in another country, and you meet somebody from Minnesota. Well, that, I think, is maybe what this reunion would have looked like. I imagine as the scene starts that Nehemiah embraces these guys. And what would they do? He would switch to their native language, right? His language, which would have been Aramaic. And he asks then, how are things back home? There's no newspaper, no TV, no phones, nothing. He has no idea what's going on back home. And that's when things take a turn. They tell him, oh, Nehemiah, it's not good. It's not good. Those who survive the exile, it says, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the city gates have been burned. And Nehemiah is shocked and devastated to hear this. And they're in a strong group culture. Ours is, is so different. But even for you and I to imagine, what would it feel like if the Statue of Liberty was toppled? Or Mount Rushmore, you know, just another national symbol was defaced. Or if the country was vulnerable to attack, if that was a reality. 
That was Jerusalem for the Jews. It was their national symbol. It was the pride of the people. It was the focal point of their faith. And it was in shambles. And Nehemiah takes in this news and he can hardly believe it. He writes, and this is verse 4 where we picked it up. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. I just imagine him just crumbling. He's sitting on the floor. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now when it says, for some days, you know, you and I, what's a few days? I don't know, three to five, something like that. It's actually referencing a longer, extended time of mourning, fasting, and praying. And we're going to read this prayer, and you could probably read it in, when we just read it with Megan, it's probably 60 seconds or less, and you've read the prayer. But when you put in the time markers from chapter 1 and chapter 2, it shows that Nehemiah called out to God in prayer for four months. That's what he means by for some days. So I want to ask you, now that you know that, what does this teach us about prayer? It teaches us, for starters, that prayer can take a while. Prayer can take a while. Now, it doesn't have to, and I love that about Nehemiah, because we get both examples right in the first two chapters. In chapter 1, the one we're looking at now, we have this extended season of praying. It's four months persisting in prayer. But then in chapter 2, we have what I've heard called an arrow prayer. I don't know if you've ever heard that term, but it's like an arrow getting shot up to heaven real fast. The king asks Nehemiah, the reference would be 2-4, chapter 2, verse 4. The king asks Nehemiah, what do you want? And he says, then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. All right? So quick prayer. That's all he has time for. Maybe in our terms, well, maybe you bow hunt so you can picture the arrow. But how about like sending a text message to God? That's what that moment is like. God, I need help. Show me what to say. God, grant me favor. And God does. But chapter 1 is the long road. And what strikes me is that Nehemiah's first reaction to this bad news, terrible news that he's received, is to pray. He just heard news that for many of us, I think, would have sent us into fix-it mode. Are any of you fixers? You know, jump into action. What can I do? And you'd have been running around trying to do stuff. And Nehemiah spends four months praying and waiting on God. I wish that was my first response when things get tough. Because I'll tell you, I'm a fix-it guy. I'm a busybody. And I don't know what you're waiting on right now. What interruption has come into your life? What discouragement? What challenge has got a hold of you? But one of the first things that we learn from Nehemiah is to run to prayer and to stay in prayer. And I want you to keep this in mind that on the other end of these long four months, Nehemiah is going to approach the king with a specific request. And that's what we we read it. That's what comes after that arrow prayer. But I was wondering this week, what would have happened if Nehemiah had gone to the king right away? Now, what if he took in the news and he just went into the king's chambers? Or what if he had waited a week and then gone to ask? Or he had waited one month instead of four? Those are just hypotheticals. I I, I don't know. But it seems that Nehemiah trusted God's timing and God's ability more than his. 
And that's this communication loop of praying and listening. Nehemiah knew that if he persisted in prayer and he kept his ears open, that God would speak. And so let's look at the prayer now, the actual prayer. And what I'd like to show you in our time this morning that we have left is four things that Nehemiah prays that are instructive for us. If you're a note taker, there's always a spot in the bulletin to do that, or you can just listen along. First, let's look at how this prayer starts. In verse 5, he says, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. It's the opening lines of the prayer. And what we want to notice is that Nehemiah, before he ever gets to asking for anything, he is praising God. We talked about this a few weeks ago, I remember, up in Studio B with high school students. We'll often close our evening with prayer requests in our small group time. We'll share prayer requests. And you know, it can quickly become a prayer list of things like, you know, an upcoming test or a, a hockey game or wrestling or injuries or sick relatives. And we're praying for those things. And they're all perfectly legitimate prayer requests that God longs to hear about from us. But prayer is so much more than a list of requests. And that's what we learn from Nehemiah, that before we ever get to our own needs, which God already knows and he wants to hear us express. But before we ever get there, God is worthy of our praise. Nehemiah says, Lord, which is Yahweh, the name God gave to his people to call him Yahweh. And then God of heaven, the Persian term for God. And then he starts listing some of God's attributes. You remember last summer we studied all summer long the qualities, the character of God. And so he's saying things like the great and awesome God. Those are like words a kid could use, right? To talk about God. The great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And what those are, all just these phrases that allow us to name the things about God that we love and to recognize who we're talking to. I want you to imagine, and some of you don't, you, you were there, you had a fun vacation this winter. And you know how it is when you come back from vacation and You're running into friends at work or at school, and they're asking how it was. And you would list off some of the things that you loved about your vacation. You would, you know, say, we went to this place. We went to this beach. We went to this restaurant. Maybe it was an amusement park, and on down the list. And that, in a sense, is what we get to do when we think about God. We're getting to say, well, God did this, and God took me here, and he did that. And Katie taught this to our kids with those prayer bracelets a few weeks ago. It was the acronym WITH, and this is the first one. Wow, God! That's where it starts. And what becomes evident in Nehemiah's prayer is that this guy knew these praiseworthy things about God because he knew his Bible. As we read through this prayer, there are a ton of phrases that are references to other passages in the Old Testament. And so Nehemiah is praying and he's thinking about what God has already said in places like Deuteronomy 7, 9. Listen to these words, especially the second half. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Nehemiah remembers. 
And he's saying, God, I love this about you. This is who you've said you are. And we're going to find this not just in Nehemiah, but this is going to come up in the Psalms and in the Lord's Prayer and in so many other places. This is the common pattern for how to start our prayers. And yet we know if we're not careful, we can so easily miss it and we just skip right to our prayer request. All right, so that's the first thing. Here's the second. The second way that Nehemiah prays, and it can also be overlooked, is a prayer of confession. Let's pick up the reading in the second half of verse 6. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. And I think it teaches us something that the first two ways that Nehemiah prays are praise and confession. Because both of these two are probably at greatest risk of being neglected. And they're both related. And here's how they're related. When we take God's holiness seriously, like all the ways that he is so praiseworthy, then we take our sin seriously. And we confess it. We say, God, in light of who you are and how great and awesome you are, I confess my sin and I reject it and I turn from it. But when we take God's holiness lightly, then we will take our sin lightly. In fact, we probably won't even use that word. And there's certainly no need for confession. We just try to do better and we gloss over it. So if we miss praise, here's what I'm saying. If we miss praise, it's no wonder that we would miss confession. But Nehemiah shows us how to do both. And here's a few guiding principles about confession. First, he confesses the sin of his people. Now, as I said, they're they're in a strong group culture. That's what sociologists would call it. You and I are in a strong individual culture. And so we tend to personalize the need for forgiveness if there is a need for forgiveness. And we won't want to miss that, but we also won't want to stop there because there is this biblical precedent for you to stand in the gap and confess the sins of others. I can't even in this moment describe to you how that works in the heavenly realm, you know, with personal culpability and and all those questions that might pop up. But we see this. Job is confessing the sins of his adult children. Daniel confesses the sins of his people. Jesus confesses the sin of the Roman soldiers who have carried out his execution from the cross. He says, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they are doing. And Stephen, in the book of Acts, does something very similar. Like these examples, Nehemiah confesses the sins of others. But in the same sentence, he is quick to acknowledge his own need for forgiveness. So it's not just, oh Lord, they've really messed up. But I'm in this too, he says. He recognizes that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, me included. And so he readily confesses his sin. And he might also be recalling other Bible passages that show us, it's a very important principle out of Scripture, that the confession of sin is connected to the effectiveness of our prayers. And we could name different examples, Old and New Testament, but Psalm 66 because he maybe was thinking of that psalm. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. 
says the psalmist. And so we see that one of the surest ways to block the answers to our prayers is to harbor unconfessed sin in your life. Thirdly, we see that confession is specific. So when Nehemiah prays, confesses sin, he's not just vaguely acknowledging some kind of mess up, but he dials it in and he says, we have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. And remember, he's just praised God for keeping his covenant of love, and now Nehemiah confesses that we, your people, have broken that covenant. He's specific. For us, when it comes to sin, we can often err in one of two extremes. One, we live in a culture where sin is downplayed, and this whole idea of confession can be a totally foreign concept. So that's one error. The other extreme is that we can be so overcome by guilt from some past or present failures that we walk around in an immense sense of shame. But the Bible shows us a better way. And I heard it spelled out like this once. Sin is committed, confessed, cleansed, and conquered. And I want you to think about where you're at in those four C's. Have you made it all the way to the end? Are you stuck in an earlier phase? Because the Bible tells us, thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, the third way Nehemiah prays, and these last two we're going to do a little bit more quickly, is he prays by remembering. Verse 8 starts off by saying, Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses. And then if we were to keep reading, he goes on to cite Scripture, and he's recalling the promises of God. And we're going to come back to this when we talk about praying through the Psalms. But there is great power in praying God's Word and praying the Bible back to God. That's what Nehemiah is doing here. He's saying, God... You said this. Your word promises this. And I'm calling on those promises now. I'm remembering because I know that you are true and trustworthy. Again, we're going to just kind of bookmark this principle and come back to it in a couple weeks. But Nehemiah then spends three verses doing this. Eight, nine, and ten. Just remembering what God has said and done. And that brings us then lastly to where Nehemiah finishes, number four. And that is his actual prayer request. And it has two parts. So we're going to read it, and you're going to see something general and something specific in verse 11. Lord, Yahweh, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. All right, so his general prayer is what? The first part. Lord, hear our prayer. Maybe some of you grew up in a liturgical setting where that call and response is something you prayed. Lord, hear our prayer. And then the specific request in the second half is for success, that he would receive favor in front of the king. Four months have gone by. 
Nehemiah has waited in prayer, and now the time is right. And God will give him not only the words to speak, but also the favor that he seeks. And so I want to ask you at the conclusion of all of this, what is one thing that you have learned about prayer from Nehemiah today? Is there something that you can take with you into this week at school or work or home life? Because I can guarantee you this, interruptions are coming. They're coming again. The question really becomes how you will meet them. I want to finish today with a personal reflection, if I may. Sometimes in preparing a sermon, studying something in Scripture, and then it just starts to pop up in my life. And you might know this too from your own time in Bible study. You're looking at something, maybe it's in your Y group, you're, you're thinking about something and it starts to pop up. And so I've been thinking a lot on prayer this week, and then what did we have this week? Interruption. Snowstorm. Two snow days, and the kids are home, and I'm trying to work. (laughs) But then in the midst of of that storm, my beautiful grandma, who is a member of this church, age almost 93, she passed away right in the middle of the snow coming down. And we were ready for it. She was on hospice care, and she longed to be home with the Lord. But, you know, in another sense, you're never ready for a loved one to pass away. Interruption. And then a couple days later, and I can't say much about it from here, but we received a morning text message and an emergency foster care placement moved into our house a couple days ago. Interruption. And as I went through this week, there was just more and more reason to pray. And what solace, what comfort, my friends, in just being able to go to God and talk to Him about what we're doing together. And I pray you would know that. Should we practice it now? Should we pray? Will you bow with me? Heavenly Father, we do begin by praising you for your faithful love, that you are a great and awesome God, and we are your people. We confess our sin to you, Lord, this morning, both corporate and personal. And we ask that you would forgive us, Lord, for the ways in which we have wandered from you. We have pursued selfish gain. We've been unkind to others. And we remember the promises of your word that you are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so we pray today that you would show each one of us what it looks like, just a little bit more, to walk and talk with you through the day and through the week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.